Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. Hunter did not have the stature of a familiar or famous founder, but he lived a life that should be recognized. Um, in my view, founders should encompass, encompass a broad tent. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor and author Eugene Procknow talking about his new book, William Hunter, Finding Free Speech, a British soldier's son who became an early American. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode of Dispatches is sponsored by Simon & Schuster, publisher of Liberty is Sweet, The Hidden History of the American Revolution by Woody Holton, available now wherever books are sold. Hello ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is author and Journal of the American Revolution contributor Eugene Procknow. He'll be talking about his new book, William Hunter, Finding Free Speech. I was able to get my hands on a copy of this book uh, before our interview. It's a spectacularly done work. The cover is beautiful. Gene's research is is just spot on, top notch as always. But what an amazing story, William Hunter. I mean, he's a name that I wasn't familiar with, to be quite honest with you. But his story is such a uniquely American story, I think. Uh, And it's so kind of revealing about Early America. Early America, so much more diverse, with so many more different peoples from different walks of life than we can ever imagine. Really spectacular. And Gene Procknow does a fabulous job of bringing that story to life. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with my friend, Eugene Procknow. Eugene Procknow, welcome back. Uh, Thank you, Brady. I'm looking forward to sharing William Hunter's story with your listeners. Remind us, Eugene, about your background. Okay, maybe start a little bit of a different spot with my background. Uh, uh, My interest in the American Revolution started when looking out the window of a family home in Vermont and seeing a view of Lincoln Mountain. From a young age, I'd always assumed that the mountain was named for Abraham Lincoln, as Vermonters were passionate fighters during the Civil War. However, the peak is really named after Benjamin Lincoln, a Revolutionary War major general who commanded troops at the three largest surrenders, Saratoga, Charleston, and Yorktown. Intrigued with an interesting story hidden in plain sight, this discovery sparked my interest in the American Revolution from an early age. About 10 years ago, I started researching and writing about the revolution after a career in management consulting. Today, I operate a website, uh, researchingtheamericanrevolution.com, write for the Journal of the American Revolution and several other outlets. I enjoy interpreting the revolution from multiple perspectives, uh, patriots, loyalists, British, Germans, Native Americans, just to name a few. Uh, William Hunter is a good example of my interest in different perspectives. He was a British soldier's son who became an early American. He memorialized in a journal about his family's dangerous experiences during the war, which formed the basis for my new book. Researching Hunter's one-of-a-kind story has consumed me for the last four years. What first drew your interest into William Hunter? Well, you know, it, it's, it just ended up being kind of a, a serendipity in the word. Um, you know, I had, I had a chance encounter at a uh, uh, neighborhood uh, dinner party here in Washington, D.C. 
um, a, um, my uh, dinner mate asked me about my job, and I said I retired from management consulting and was now researching the American Revolution. And then she said to me, um, well, you know, we have a diary in the basement that you might be interested in. So, you know, I didn't think too much of it, but you know, the following week I went to go see her and looked at the manuscript. And uh, it was a really interesting manuscript, but I found several problems in the manuscript. First, there was no name in the manuscript. The, the first few pages were missing, and there were some missing pages in between. And the family members didn't really know who the author was because uh, it had been passed down through multiple generations. However, what I found was just really uh, amazing. Um, it was 35 pages, uh, 12,000 words, written in beautiful 18th century cursive handwriting, something that we just kind of lost today. But um, what I found from looking at the um, at the journal is that um, it was it was um, I could find out that that the, the author's the journal author's father was a in the 26th Regiment of Foot of the British Army. Um, I knew he wasn't an officer because no families accompanied the officers, and he did do, uh, describe some recruiting duties. So I thought he was that would make him most likely a, a non-commissioned officer. And going through the uh, the muster rolls of the regiment, uh, John Hunter fit the diary's description of the battles and campaigns. So from that side, that was as far as I could go. So then I went through the other end of the journal when the journal uh, uh, writer came to America. He was an apprentice printer and he returned to America uh, in 1793. So I researched printers in America at that time and found somebody by the name of William Hunter. And then I discovered a letter in the Kentucky archives written by William Hunter. And lo and behold, it was the same handwriting. And then lastly, uh, here in Washington, D.C., I found an obituary uh, which fits the facts in the diary um, to a T. So I was able to authenticate the diary through corroboration of facts and through par third parties. And there's just a, a few minor errors, uh, which kind of makes the uh, diary more credible. So I realized in the end I had a journal that was that was the only surviving account written by a child of a British soldier during the American Revolution. Uh, really an amazing documentary find. Talk about what brought Hunter to North America. Okay. Uh, and and that, it's a common story, but it's also a unique story. Um, in the 18th century, British Army families accompanied the soldiers on foreign deployments. I mean, these foreign deployments span many years. Uh, and uh, William's father, John Hunter, um, uh, was born in Ireland, Lisburn, Ireland, and he married in Ireland uh, and then enlisted in the 26th Regiment of Foot in Ireland. Uh, which means he was a Protestant because they weren't um, uh, enlisting um, Catholics at that time. So with the regiment, he sailed uh, uh, to America from Cork in 1768. And by the way, I got a chance to visit uh, Cork, and I saw the dock, which is still there, that he sailed from, which was kind of neat. So they um, initially were garrisoned in, the, in New Brunswick, New Jersey, which is now uh, uh, which is New Brunswick, New Jersey today. And... Um, um, later that year, uh, William Hunter was born in, in, in New Brunswick, New Jersey. So he, uh, by natural, uh, by birthright, would be an American as we would describe it today. Um, the garrison life in New Jersey was relatively quiet and peaceful at that time. The townspeople and the soldiers got along with, without any animosity. In fact, they had some, uh, some, uh, um, uh, some nice dinners and, and celebrations together. However, um, after the Boston Massacre, the, the uh, British needed to realign its troops, 
So the 26th Regiment uh, transferred to New York City and then later to Montreal. Um, in Canada, William received his first schooling and learned a bit of French, which uh, later in the story will become and come very handy for him. So um, I do have more information if people are interested on the pre-revolutionary war garrison life on two articles I wrote for the Journal of the American Revolution chronicling the 26th Regiment. What did the war look like for this young man? You know, uh, he, he was a young boy during the war, uh, but it was basically in a, a nutshell. Uh, he, it was horrific, personally devastating and life altering uh, for reasons that will become apparent here soon. Uh, you know, when the war started, the Hunter family was in Canada. Um, and, you know, upon learning of the planned re- rebel invasion of Canada, his father was deployed to Fort St. Jean, which is about 30 miles south of Montreal, while William and his mother stayed in Montreal. The Americans, um, under the command of Richard Montgomery, uh, besieged the the fort, and during the bombardment of the fort, William's father was severely wounded. Uh, After the capture of the the fort by the Americans, William and his mother traveled to Fort St. Jean to accompany the sergeant into captivity. A uh, Connecticut officer described the families as uh, barefooted, almost naked, covered with mud and water. And just remember, this was the harsh elements of a Canadian November. So pretty, pretty tough, um, uh, horrific uh, things to overcome. Um, while most of the prisoners, the British prisoners, went to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, John Hunter was too wounded to travel. So the, the family uh, was incarcerated in a nearby fort for the winter. Uh, the next spring, the family traveled down Lake Champlain Valley through New York City and eventually to Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Actually, uh, uh, William um, in New York uh, describes uh, the, um, the the impressive uh, uh, uniforms of the Continental officers. So I think it's probably the only time I've seen that anybody impressed with their uniforms since the, they weren't all that great. Um, but after a year of captivity in Pennsylvania, uh, John Hunter was exchanged and the family headed to New York City. However, in New York City, this is the devastating part. Uh, Hunter's brother died from illness, and this really devastated him. Um, Howard, uh, Sergeant Hunter uh, returned to active duty and participated in the storming of the Hudson Highland forts uh, in the Saratoga campaign, campaign in an attempt to relieve the pressure on John Burgoyne. Um, and this is another devastating part of the war for, for William. Um, he describes uh, going from a wagon to wagon in search of the, you know, the, the wagons carrying the dead and the wounded back from the Hudson Highlands to New York City. And so he searched from wagon to wagon looking for his father. And it's really a gut-wrenching account of that. And he was so relieved not to find his father. Um, later, the uh, British uh, sent uh, the 26th Regiment to Philadelphia, and William went, went along with that and uh, spent a winter in, in garrison duty in the city. Then they returned to New York City. Uh, but by that time, Sergeant Hunter was no longer fit for duty. Remember, he was um, uh, injured at Fort St. Jean. Uh, he was getting uh, older, uh, and he's just kind of what they called back then worn out. So the British command sent um, Hunter back to recruit uh, on a recruiting mission to England. And so the family set sail and they thought, well, the war is over for us. We're done. However, when they got to the English Channel, they were assaulted by a French privateer. And um, so this is a, a, another devastating thing to him personally was that William witnessed uh, combat and death for his first time. Um, you know, the deck of an 18th century sailing ship under fire was not a, a pleasant place to be in any 
what shape or manner. So they were captured again. He spent another year as a prisoner of war, this time in Normandy, France. Uh, there is a little amazing sidelight there in, in Normandy. Um, uh, William's mother um, gained some expertise in dealing with burns. Um, a local English family had a child that was burned, um, and it was, a, uh, it was an English gentleman um, there in France, living in France. And so the mother was called in, and she created a real friendly relationship with that family and the, and the mother. And so when they, when that family had entertained um, Lafayette and some uh, British officers for dinner, uh, they invited her to dinner. So William's mother actually had dinner with Lafayette, which is pretty amazing. So then after that year was up, they were exchanged again, and they finally did make it to, to, to safety in England. Why did Hunter decide to return to America, and where did he settle? Okay. Well, you know, in a, in kind of in a nutshell, uh, William Hunter returned to America to be able to live in a society which permitted free speech. Uh, in England, he had become a, print, a printing apprentice and learned the printing and publishing businesses. Um, and he also became a follower of several Enlightenment thinker, thinkers such as Joseph Priestley and Erasmus Darwin. But however, he, he saw as a result of the French Re- Revolution and um, some religious dissent, he watched government actions and mob attack individuals who spoke their minds. Uh, for example, he was in Birmingham when Priestley's lab and house was destroyed by a mob, and, Birmingham, and Priestley was forced to emigrate to America. So likewise, Wayne decided to go to America for free speech. Um, he, he, just, he, he just could not live in a society. He didn't want to live in a society for which he couldn't practice his profession in an open and honest manner. So he came to, he sailed to Philadelphia, uh, and he just escaped uh, England just in time before the British and French war fighting um, occurred, and he would not have been able to, to leave. But he came to America with very little money, just a couple of weeks' worth of living expenses, but he had a skill as a printer. So he found employment with a um, newspaper editor by the name of Andrew Brown, who's a former British soldier who deserted his regiment just before or after Lex- Lexington and Concord. So that must have been an interesting set of conversations. Um, yeah, but um, Brown turned out to be a, really a terrible employer. Um, and he had uh, 18 of the 19 apprentices he had uh, never finished their apprenticeship. So it was, he was just a horrible person to work for. So uh, William Hunter uh, reinvented himself again and uh, started his own printing company with a, a partner by the name of John Colwick. And um, they print, their first printing was a Spanish grammar book, which was probably not a very great seller, but it was a start in the marketplace. What brings Hunter to Kentucky? Okay, well, you know, it's interesting. So he started as a printer in, in Philadelphia, uh, but uh, Philadelphia was the book and newspaper publishing center of America. And it was a very crowded market. There was a lot of immigrants like himself coming into it. And quite frankly, it was just too many printers and not enough business. So like many people, he and his partner, John Colrick, decided to go west. So they, they their first stop was um, in Washington, Pennsylvania, which was um, a year before the center of the Whiskey Rebellion. And uh, uh, there he founded like, like-minded people, Republicans, um, you know, not today's Republicans, but people who wanted a republic and a democratic form of government. So, you know, just a different definition of Republicans. So, um, and, um, you know, he, there, um, uh, he also probably personally was very important to him. He met his wife and his lifelong love. And her name was Anne. So uh, there they started the uh, John 
Tolbrick and um, William Hunter started the second paper in Pennsylvania, west of the Allegheny. So, um, but um, their stay there in, in, in Washington, Pennsylvania was relatively short. Uh, John Colwick was um, uh, a little more of a federalist, and um, um, Hunter was uh, a, a Jeffersonian, and so that clashed. So um, William Hunter um, entered into a partnership with a, na- a man that uh, named William Beaumont, who uh, people that are familiar with the Whiskey Rebellion may know that name. He was uh, one of the major adjutants in, in that. And um, so they moved to Kentucky, and their first stop in Kentucky was Washington, Kentucky, which was um, not, it's not really a hardly anything today because it's been subsumed by Mayfield, but it's at that time was the gateway to the Northwest, and it was where a post office was, and that was the most important thing for starting a paper was where the post office was. Uh, but when he, when he came to Kentucky, uh, Hunter found some challenging environment for him that he didn't really expect. Um, much of the, uh, many of the people that founded Kentucky were Revolutionary War veterans. And um, Hunter found it pretty challenging for a son of a British soldier to uh, integrate into that community. So he did find some stresses in his life and some, and, and, and some discrimination against him because of his background. And he would always have his loyalty um, challenged here over the next several years. So, um, it, but, but anyway, Kentucky became his home for the next 25 years. How did he become involved in the newspaper business? You know, it, it, it's, it, it's interesting as people went west, and, it's, it, and I'll, I'll contrast this with, um, uh, with um, England here in a minute, but uh, um, newspapers uh, 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 where, where every, every town wanted one, every American, and it kind of put you on the map if you had a newspaper. And it was kind of the ultimate expression of, of free speech to have a newspaper in your town. Kentucky had one, only one other newspaper, and that was in Lexington. Uh, and so he went to the capital, Frankfurt, um, and he all had a different spin to that uh, because um, Frankfurt was the capital. He had the first ch- chance to get um, the, the, the scoop on politics. And what happened is that soon each town needed two newspapers, one for each political party. Uh, you know, newspapers in the late 18th century, early 19th century were highly partisan, in fact, probably even more partisan than they are today. And these newspapers made no attempt at balance. Uh, they sometimes even make attempt at the truth. So um, Hunter went on to operate um, uh, the, the Palladium in Frankfort, Kentucky, and that was his most important newspaper. Uh, that he did that. And to help support him economically, he was elected uh, state printer for 10 years in a row, uh, which provided a, um, uh, some financial security. Um, back then, um, the, uh, the uh, government contracted out printing to private enterprises to do that. So he printed the state legislative news. Um, he had a scoop on his competitors in other parts of the state, and his paper was circulated throughout uh, Kentucky, the Northwest, and many places in the East. Um, notably, one of the things that's interesting about uh, his newspaper business in Kentucky in 1806, when uh, uh, Lewis and Clark returned to um, St. Louis, um, Hunter uh, published the first account of, of their uh, expedition. Um, and uh, uh, he was a friend of uh, George Rogers Clark. So uh, George Rogers Clark received a, a letter from his brother describing the expedition, and uh, Hunter interviewed uh, Clark and got the letter, reprinted the letter, plus added a, uh, 
um, uh, an editorial, editorial in, front of, in front of that, and he was the first uh, person to report that uh, even before the official reports came to Washington, and that was reprinted in uh, dozens of papers around the country. Um, so he, um, for, for a hunter, you know, operating a newspaper was more than a business. It was part of the economic and political needs of the citizens, and it really demonstrated his desire for free speech. Um, in, a, in kind of a sidelight here, the last town he lived in um, England was in a town called Walsall, W-A-L-S-A-L-L, and that town wouldn't have a local newspaper until 1855. Um, after a hundred passed. So um, it's pretty amazing. He came to the United States so he could, he could do what he wanted and, and be able to print what he wanted and print his own newspaper. What did he say about the alien and sedition acts and what were the consequences? Uh, yeah, again, that's an, another first for William Hunter's um, editorials. He printed the first editorial opposing sedition act. Uh, and, and actually the, the fact of just printing that was a crime under that act. Um, and, uh, uh, it's, it's, uh, it was a pretty serious business back then. You know, you, you know what happened now, uh, but you didn't, you didn't know what would happen then. And it was certainly wasn't determined that the outcome would be as favorable for, for hunters. It was, um, in, in back in that time, the secretary of state, not the attorney general was responsible for, uh, 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 policing the violations of the, uh, violations of the Sedition Act. Secretary of State at the time was a, a man named Timothy Pickering. He organized a scan of newspapers for all the violations. Um, two U.S. district attorneys recommended independently to Pickering that Hunter be charged with sedition and he would face jail times and fines. Uh, those those uh, penalties would put Hunter's paper out of business and bankrupt his family. So he was pretty serious. Um, however, Pickering was over, overruled the, the district attorneys. Um, he was worried that a Kentucky jury would not convict Hunter uh, due to the state's um, Democratic-Republican majority, kind of like what happened uh, in Pennsylvania and other places uh, with the Whiskey Rebellion. And It was hard to prosecute locally because these people weren't going to return a guilty plea. Now, Hunter didn't know that for sure until after the fact. And, you know, Pickering did select the now famous Matthew Lyons of Vermont for prosecution, who spent time in jail. And uh, it was an easy conviction for and It forced Lyons out of the state, bankrupted him, and he moved to Kentucky. So um, it was, uh, 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 it, it, location really mattered here. But in the end, you know, William Hunter was, was courageous here. He could have lost all of his newspaper and he could have lost all of his assets. Um, and remarkably, 30 years later, Kentuckians uh, were still citing Hunter's bravery in the papers of the time and his bravery in practicing free speech in the face of oppression from government. How did he make his way to ultimately to Congress? Uh, what were his ideologic, ideological principles at that time, Gene? Uh, well, you know, he was a self uh, described Republican, and he uh, opposed uh, monarchy and any form of absolutism. So he supported Jefferson, and uh, he opposed the Federalist. Um, he got into many battles, newspaper battles and political battles for with Humphrey Marshall, ran against Marshall, uh, sometimes won, sometimes lost against Marshall for local pos uh, political positions and state legislative positions. He, uh, Hunter was uh, elected to the Kentucky legislature. Um, uh, I should mention Humphrey Marshall was a cousin of John Marshall, 
uh, but they're a very federalist family. Um, interestingly enough, um, Hunter didn't support his fellow Kentuckian Henry Clay. He thought Clay was too much of a compromiser. <laughs> he, he really, um, he, that's why he became a Jackson. He thought Jackson was a, a strong, tough leader. Um, you know, despite Hunter's not willing to compromise, you know, he, Hunter did have some of his own conflicts. Uh, for example, he printed some brilliant anti-slavery editorials while at the same time employing enslaved people in his businesses. While this seems two-faced to us, this was more normal back then. But Hunter still had some courage to do this because um, on several occasions he faced shutdown of his paper by uh, enslavers and their bullying supporters um, uh, attempting to to uh, um, to stop his press. So it, 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 it's, it was one of the conundrums of the day that people did that. Um, later, uh, he became a fervent Jacksonian. Um, and then when Andrew Jackson became president, Hunter moved to Washington, D.C. I guess that's the third Washington he's lived in. Um, and he really became part of the spoil system as Jackson manipulated the federal government resources as never before to cement his powers. Um, Hunter became one of 74, at least, newspaper editors that uh, received federal jobs, and hundreds more received government contracts for printing. Um, and Hunter spent his last 25 years of his life as an auditor in the U.S. Treasury, uncovering fraud, waste, and abuse. Um, so he remained politically active through Jackson's administration. After Jackson's administration, he served uh, seven more presidents before passing in 1854 at the age of 86. Um, and he's um, buried under a seven-foot obelisk in Washington, D.C.'s Congressional Cemetery uh, among you know, presidents, senators, and members of Congress. Why do you consider Hunter to be a founder? What do you feel like his legacy should be? Yeah, I, I most emphatically believe he was a founder, um, and that may be some of my personal uh, um, views on what is a founder. But, you know, I don't think Hunter did not have the stature of a familiar or famous founder, but he lived a life that should be recognized. Um, in my view, founders should encompass, encompass a broad tent, as our country was not just built by a few people. So that's my definition of founder, and that's why I think he should be a founder. Um, you know, he left a pretty remarkable uh, legacy, um, despite living near a famous Kentucky painter, uh, Matthew Jewett, who painted many of Hunter's colleagues. There's no picture of Hunter, which is consistent with his character and his Republican uh, values. However, he, he left something better than a picture. He left a one-of-a-kind journal and an amazing window into an 18th century life. Um, and there are other aspects in that journal uh, that uh, are really unique and, and will be studied by scholars of revolution uh, from this point forward. Um, you know, as a person, as an as a individual, he overcame adversity, he took risks, and he capitalized opportunities. You know, he demonstrates that uh, what it takes to be an immigrant and how do an immigrant succeed in the United States. And he overcame anglophobia and discrimination, and uh, it, was, it was not easy for him to do that. Um, he was a staunch and courageous advocate for free speech. Um, and his newspaper business demonstrates the uh, difficulty of making money in the news media, something that we know about today. And newspapers were a tough business back then. So his, his, um, his long run in the newspaper business is pretty remarkable and stands, stands out. He, he also provided um, uh, valuable services as a government official, 
you know, too often we don't think of government officials as doing that. He certainly did that. Um, uh, he was able to uncover a, a, a fair amount of fraud and abuse in the Department of Navy and among the pension system, the government. And um, that really helped clean up and, 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 and professionalize the administration of, of the Treasury Department. So I would say, lastly, um, his life is, uh, embraces adventure. And, you know, he lived in three national capitals. Uh, he learned multiple languages and he grew up on two continents. You know, all three of those things are pretty important for people in the 21st century. 21st century. So to me, that, that is his legacy. Gene Proc now. Thanks again. Well, Brady, thank you for the opportunity to share William Hunter. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.